It's good to have you here. Um, I wanted to make a, one last announcement. Actually, I had a couple announcements, but people I was going to announce aren't here this morning. Darwin and Becky Skiba, do you guys know them? How do you know Darwin and Becky? Raise your hand. Okay, more than 10 of you need to know them because they're pretty amazing. Um, they've been a part of this community for years. Darwin just celebrated his 71st birthday. Um, but they just celebrated their 48th year of marriage. That's right. That's amazing. That's amazing. So, when they're here next time, I mean, I wouldn't be here. It was 48th. I'm going and celebrating somewhere, right? So, um, they're, when they're here next time, we'll make a big deal of it. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, and we're going to do something a little bit more in a couple weeks. Uh, Pat Argan Schoner right over here. Pat, you can wave. If you uh, read in the bulletin, I think it's in the bulletin, um, Pat has served and prayed for and cared for this community for 15 years as an elder and uh, has just been such a steady rock in this community. And he is going to um, step down kind of at the end of this month. And uh, so at the beginning of next month, we're just going to kind of celebrate what he and his family have done and the way they've invested uh, these last 15 years. So it, throughout this week, throughout the barbecue, when you see him, thank him uh, for his service. And uh, he would just say to you, I know, because he said this to me, my services are going to look different. It's going to be in kids' community or it's going to be wherever. And uh, that's so true of Pat. So let's, uh, let's jump in. This is the, uh, almost the very end of the book of Acts. We have been on a journey for about, what, 14 months through the book of Acts I started back looking at the very beginning of the book, working our way through, and we are down to the last little bit. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at uh, the very end of the book and really look at it through the frame of trials. Uh, I would venture to say that if I took a poll, every one of us has experienced a trial at some point. And so I thought it pertinent for us to actually look into and use the very end of Acts and the beginning of James to kind of uh, cause us to wrestle with this subject of trials. Next week, just as a reminder, at the end of every series where we study the book in its entirety, we have an opportunity for the community to give voice to the book. So, for example, this time we are going to give voice to the book of Acts. And so there will be several people within the community that will say, over this last year, the thing that has most impacted me from the book of Acts is, and they'll describe that, We open that up to everyone. So look back over your notes, look back through the book, and begin to ask the question, what is it that God most impressed upon you through the book of Acts? Because we believe very strongly here, right, that it is not just a voice or a couple voices that speak, but that we as a community all hear from God, we are all invited into a community of learning, and that all of us in our story, get a chance to live out and share what the gospel is communicating to us. And so next week, we're going to live into that. And like I said, we do that at the end of every series where we kind of dig into uh, a a book in its entirety. So this week, Acts, if you have your Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 27 and 28. I'm just going to give us a little snapshot of what Paul was experiencing here at the end of Acts. Uh, The first verse in Acts 24, it says this, When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. 
So Paul has been in this period in prison for multiple years. A two-year period where they like kind of just forgot about him, left him in there in between different people who were in rule. And then uh, the next kind of phase, if you're looking through the book of Acts, is a trial followed by another trial followed by another trial. And he's constantly being uh, brought before the council to, uh, to really stand for his life. What, what does your life represent? And then we get to Acts 27. And it says this, And when it was decided that, he, that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some prisoners to the centurion of the Augustan cohort, Named Julius. I'm just kind of skipping through the passage. It says this Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon, soon this like storm gathered, this northeaster that was like swinging in. And the text says, When the ship was caught and could not face the wind, they gave way to it and were driven along. A little later it says, neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. And they were at the point where the text said that they had all, that their hope of being saved was at last abandoned. Then, fearing that they might run on the rocks, they dropped some anchors. They prayed for day to come. At that point it says that there were sailors seeking to escape from the ship. They lowered another ship into the sea in which to kind of get off of the ship. And Paul yelled out to them, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food. And then he urged them to take some food, and he said this, uh, when he had said these things to them, that they're not going to perish. He took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And finally, when you think everything is good, they, they crash, they all survive, everyone washes up on shore. They were brought safely through and then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed them unusual kindness. They kindled a fire and welcomed everyone uh, because it was cold and rainy. When Paul had gathered the bundles of sticks and put them on a fire, a viper came out. Because of the heat and fastened on his hand, he, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. This is just kind of like encapsulating a snapshot of the end of the book of Acts. You have his character being destroyed, him being slandered, falsely accused, falsely imprisoned, beaten, jailed, left in prison for multiple years, for a two-year span where they kind of just forgot about him. He faced trials ad nauseum again and again. He was shipwrecked, and then when all was recovered from the shipwreck, then he was bitten by a viper, right? I mean, so Paul, Paul went through a rough, a rough spell, right? He was in the midst of quite a few uh, trials, and it's ironic that I sometimes think that I have bad days when you look at this list, Right? I mean, there are days that I just kind of moan and complain, and I'm like, man, my life is rough. And then I look at this, and I get a little bit of perspective. That Paul was in the midst of some crazy trials, some suffering, some difficulty. And I want to do this morning is uh, take kind of a devotional approach to this idea of trials and to this passage, and, and suggest for us four truths that we can kind of take away from Paul's experience 
that could help us walk through trials. Now, this isn't my typical approach, but I think it's important for us to sometimes uh, to look into a passage and kind of begin to consider what is it that we could pull out of this that could enable us to walk through and learn from Paul's experience. But before I do that, I want to admit two things up front that will kind of color the list that I'm about to give you. The first idea is this, that I need to hear this talk or these four points as much as anyone in the room. Right? Some, I want to make it clear, and I've, I've communicated this quite a few times in the past, but uh, I'm not up here to say that I have somehow gotten through all these four things I'm going to suggest, and uh, it's easy sailing on the other side of trials. I am a person in process just like every one of us. Uh, so my pr- theology is in process. My life is in process. I'm trying to figure out what it means to live into the kingdom just as much as any of us in this room are. Um, so that said, I mean, this is a list that I need to hear. It's a list that I need to walk through and work through. Uh, the second thing about this, just to kind of prep you, is this list is not intended to make you feel all warm and fuzzy. Okay. Sometimes when we look at uh, passages concerning trials or when you start to imagine the difficulty that many of you are currently walking through, what you sometimes want is someone to come alongside of you and give you a little shot in the arm and say, you're going to make it, it's going to be great, don't worry about it, this thing will go away really fast and uh, you'll never face another trial in your life or some other lie that you don't really need to hear. But sometimes that's what we, we do. My hope this morning instead is to give us perspective. So it's not just going to be a shot in the arm, but more than that, my my hope is that we're given perspective that when we walk through difficulties, and they will come, that these four things kind of enable us to walk through them well. All right? So, with that said, let's jump in. Number one, if we're going to walk through trials well, the first thing I would suggest is for us to remember there are higher priorities than our comfort. There are higher priorities than our comfort. I mean, that's a hard one to say in our particular culture. Because if you were to rate values, societal values, I would say that the values of comfort, security, satisfaction, happiness, would be right at the top of the list. I mean, those are the things that our society would say, if you're not happy, then something is wrong. If you're not satisfied, if you're not comfortable, if you're not secure, if, if in some way your life is not smoothing, like going along sailing smoothly at this point, then, then probably something's dramatically off. Our society will clearly communicate that. And if you think about it, in our own lives, it's amazing what we're willing to give up to secure comfort. We're willing to sacrifice our dignity, our relationships, sometimes our common sense for happiness. We're willing to sacrifice freedom for comfort and security. I'll give up my rights in order to have those things. Sometimes we're willing to forego discipline or just good moral choices for the desire of instant gratification or satisfaction. And if we start thinking through the list of things we're willing to give up, uh, what we're communicating is that one of the greatest priorities or one of the highest values then is, in some ways, comfort and happiness. 
I think we even try to frame our Jesus around these ideas of comfort and happiness. David Platt in his uh, book, Radical, made this kind of a mocking statement about how we would describe Jesus. He says this, We want a nice, middle-class American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and who would never call us to give away everything we have. A Jesus who would not expect us to forsake our closest relationships so that he receives all of our affection. We want a Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion but does not infringe on our comforts because after all, he loves us just the way we are. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes, and who, for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. See, what he's trying to get at is this idea that we place such a value on comfort and satisfaction that we even frame our idea of what Jesus requires or desires of us around that. So these values cause us at times to see trials not just as an inconvenience, but as something to actually be avoided. Something to quickly do away with. Something that has no value to us at all. The Dutch priest Henry Nouwen makes this statement about it. He says, We fail to see the place of suffering in the broader scheme of things. We fail to see that suffering is an inevitable dimension of life. Because we have lost perspective, we fail to see that unless one is willing to accept suffering properly, he or she is really refusing to continue in a quest for maturity. To refuse suffering is to refuse personal growth. I mean, when was the last time that you were in the midst of a trial and someone said to you, hey, listen, lean into it, right? Because it is bringing about your growth. Usually it's like, hey, let's think about, let's strategize. How do we get out of this? How do we change this? See, if comfort was the goal, then trials, frankly, are not worth it. But if there's a a deeper and a higher perspective, and there's something that can be gained or learned, there's a higher set of priorities than our comfort. Romans, the book of Romans puts it this way. It says this, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. The outcomes of enduring trials are worth it. The text is saying, James says it this way, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So here's something I think is important. The perspective of kingdom people is that the hardest trials bring the thing that you want the most. That the hardest trials, the most difficult things that you and I have to walk through actually bring the things we desire the most. I remember growing up, one of the most often quoted verses whenever I was going through a difficulty would be the verse in Romans 8. Many of you probably are already thinking of this verse. God works all things together for good. So Russ, this is a crappy, crappy situation, but He'll work all things together for good. And it was over and over. And I would say to myself often, this doesn't feel like good. 
This doesn't seem good at all. How is it that this verse is actually true? And I would argue that I didn't think it was true. Or I thought it was some dumb Christian spin on it, right? Like, well, I mean, he'll work it out. It'll be good in the end. And I was like, man, that's just stupid. What kind of hope is that? There's no hope at all. And then I went, wait a second. Verses are always best in context, right? So you read the next verse. Because if you ask the question, he works it for the good of those who've been called according to his purpose, the question should be, what is his purpose? Is his purpose your happiness? Is his purpose your comfort? Is his purpose always your satisfaction? Well, according to the text, his purpose is this. To be conformed to the image of his Son. To become like Jesus. That when you look in the mirror every day, you start to see a reflection that looks a little bit more like you're staring at the face of Jesus. That's the purpose. So the first reminder when you're going through difficulty, whatever difficulty it is that you might be currently facing, is that there are higher priorities than your comfort. And one of those is your conformity to the image of Jesus. Number two, count it joy. Count it joy. Now, in the book of Romans, it says, right, that we're to rejoice in our sufferings. In the book of James, it says, consider or count it all joy. I want to look at those two words in the book of James. If you want to turn there, because you don't actually believe that's what it says, it's in James chapter 1. Okay, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And it says, count it all joy. I want to look at the word count, and I want to look at the word joy for a moment. Those two ideas. The word count really, simply means, it, it, it really contains this idea of pressing your mind down upon something. Other ways you could describe it, it means to weigh something. To go over it, to consider it, to measure it, to calculate it. It's really like a mathematical term. Or some scale term where you're going, man, what is the value in this? Let me calculate it out. How important is this thing? Let me weigh it. Let me see its significance. That's the idea of calculate. My, my kids do this every time they get dessert. They calculate. Like, the size of that cookie seems to be a little bit larger than the size of this cookie. Or, like, I'll have M&M's and I'll pour a few in each of their hands. And within seconds, they've counted them, Right? Like, how did you count them that fast? Well, he's got 15, I've got 17. I want to go, well, consider it all joy, right? That's what I want to say. <laughs> you know, instead I say, rejoice with those who rejoice. And uh, then none of them have learned the verse yet, and I'm kind of waiting because then I'm waiting for one of them someday to go and weep with those who weep, right? But they don't. I just keep reminding them like, hey, be, be happy or just trade one and you're even then, okay? Don't, don't worry about it. But it, that mean, it's that idea, right? To calculate, to like try to figure it out. To count it all joy. And I think what Paul is really getting at is this idea that we should have a different lens through which we're looking at our difficulties. That if the rest of the world was looking at our situation, they would count it, they would weigh it, and they would go, you're getting hosed, this is horrible, this is a a rotten situation, and we look at it through this completely different lens, and when we consider it, 
We consider it with a theological framework. We consider it with an understanding of God's goodness. We consider it in all these other ways that make us then go, yeah, yeah, I can, I can count this. I can consider this joy. I can consider this different than the way perhaps the rest of the world would see it. That's why Joseph in the Old Testament, his brothers had betrayed him, sold him into slavery. He's at that place where he finally sees his brothers up close. He's confronting them. He's revealing himself to them. And they're like, oh no, we're going to die. And he says this to them, what you intended for harm, God intended for good, right? He had a totally different lens. Everyone else was looking at the situation completely different. But Joseph, through that lens, says, listen, this is a meaningful interruption. This was a, a change of plan, but it was the right change of plan. So the first idea is to consider it. The second idea is the word joy. Now, joy is one of those words that you could probably look at in several different ways. And I would argue that most people, when they read this verse, don't read it like this. They don't think, oh, happy. Let's bust out some balloons. Let's get real excited. Let's throw out the streamers. Let's have a party. That's not what you think when you read it. You don't read, consider it all amazing excitement whenever you face trials, right? I would argue that most of us read it this way. Consider it a deep, inner, contemplative well-being whenever you face trials, right? That's probably how we would read it. That's how we talk about it. We're like, well, happiness is this fleeting thing, but there's this inner contentment way deep down inside, that if you can grab a hold of that, that's what we're talking about. So, I figured I would do a little word study, just to ask the question, what is this word literally saying? But instead of boring you with the Greek, instead of uh, boring you with the exact dictionary definition, what I want to do is just give you the context in which this exact same word is used in other situations throughout the New Testament. So here's my hope. I'm not going to tell you if it's the excited, happy, joyous joy or if it's the deep, inner, contemplative joy. I want you to come to your own conclusion. So here's where the verse or where this particular word of joy shows up throughout the New Testament. This word is used for the reaction that the shepherds have when they see the star and they hear the announcement of the birth of Jesus. The same word is used when a man finds his treasure in the field and in his great joy goes and sells all he has to purchase the field. I'm sure it was this quiet inner feeling. Um, It was the response of the women at the resurrection when they walked to the tomb and saw it empty. It is how the 72 disciples felt when they saw the first miracle performed. The same word is used in that context. Last but not least, it's how the angels respond in heaven to seeing a sinner repent and accept Jesus. So when that one sinner comes to know Jesus and heaven gets really quiet and deeply (laughs) contemplates, oh, I'm filled with joy. Right? That's the context. That's what the text is saying. I mean, it's a feeling of enormous satisfaction. 
It's, it's this idea that like in the midst of trials, we have a perspective that is different than anyone else going through them. And the only way that I think we can truly consider trials from this perspective is that if we actually want God more than we want to get out of the trial. Right? I mean, do we actually want God more than how bad we want out of the trial? That's how you can look at it and consider it joy. Number three, endure. Endure. The passage says in James again, testing of your faith produces perseverance. Another word would be steadfastness. Another word would be endurance. It's actually a Greek word that's made up of two Greek words. The first one being to remain, the second word being under. So, the testing of your faith produces the ability, according to James, to remain under. To remain under. Now, when a trial comes, when you start to feel the pressure, you don't have to answer this out loud, but what is our natural reaction? What is the thing that we most want to do? I think it's found in Acts 27. I'll throw the verse up again. It says this, And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, they had lowered a ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes in the ship's boat and let it go. See, when the trial was all around, when they were in the midst of the storm, when the storm was at its worst, what did they want to do? They wanted to abandon ship. I'm convinced that when trials come, when we feel suffering, when we get in that place that none of us really initially want to be, that what we tend to do is abandon ship. We tend to cut and run. We want to get out of the situation as quick as possible. And I know that's what I often want to do. I started thinking through a list of things. Uh, anytime that I'm fasting, I think about eating. And then I think about why my fast should be shorter than I originally planned. Right? Anytime I go out on a run, I think about why I want to run less miles than I originally planned to run. Why I want to get out from under it. I want to abandon ship. If uh, you're in a difficult relationship... One that you can't get out of. What we try to do is get out of it instead of remaining under it. When you're faced with having to give forgiveness, you simply go, well, I don't want to. I ignore it. I just step away from it. Or about saving money. We start to go, well, I mean, that isn't so bad, right? We come up with ways. Or about giving money. We sometimes we'll go, well, you know, actually, if I save it now, I could give more of it later. Works out way better for everyone. We, have to, we find all these ways to kind of abandon ship in life, to, to, to leave. Let me give you this one thought. I'm hoping we'll stick with you. Every good thing that God wants to pour into your life comes through remaining under. Right? Every good thing that God wants to pour into your life comes through you actually remaining under. Seeing it through. Sticking with it. Enduring. 
Because it is in that that the steadfastness, the perseverance, the endurance creates a maturity. It means you're not lacking anything. Or in Romans it says it gives you that hope and the character because you've remained under. You've endured. If you've ever wondered why you feel like you're going through the same trial again and again, has that ever occurred to you? Like you had something happen and it kind of stuck with you in one particular way and then that trial went away and then it seemed like you circled back around. Different trial, but it's dealing with the same issue. And then it happens again and again and again and again. Let me ask you, have you bailed all the other times? Because it's going to keep coming back around to that thing until you've remained under in a way that sees you actually grow through it. Fourth and final one is recognize Jesus in the midst of the trial. Recognize Jesus in the midst of the trial. If we uh, look at the book of Acts again, we'll see this in uh, Acts 27. He says, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. I mean, it... It's an interesting, that's a very interesting thing. If you think about New Testament, think about the number of times that Jesus is seen in the midst of a storm. You have this one storm, all the disciples are in a boat, everything's getting crazy, Jesus is sleeping in the lower deck. They come down, they wake Him up, they say, we're freaking out, we're all going to die, this is horrible, it's the worst storm we've ever seen. We're all sailors, we're all experienced, but we've seen nothing like this before. Save us, He walks out, calms the storm. But He's in the boat. Next time, disciples are off on their own, they're sailing across, Jesus tells them to go from one side to the other side, and then this huge storm erupts there in the midst of it, and what do we see? We see Jesus walking to them on the water going to get to the boat. He's in the midst of the storm again. And this time, though He's not physically present, apart from the Holy Spirit, where He is spiritually present in this particular sense, it's fascinating to me that in the midst of a raging storm, where this is the point where they're most scared for their life, they realize the ship will probably break apart. It's the time when Paul busts out communion. It seems odd. But what he's doing in that very moment is he's recognizing the presence of Jesus in the midst of the storm. And he's making everyone else aware that His presence is with us. I think in order to go through any trial, there has to be this fundamental belief that God is for you and that God is with you. Right? And what, what Paul is trying to do here, I think, in this situation is to say that, listen, at the very core of our faith is suffering. Think about that for the moment. Suffering is actually at the very heart of the Christian story. That Paul, in breaking the bread, is reminding all of us that whatever suffering you are in the midst of enduring, Jesus experienced it too. 
that Jesus did it, but for you. That He is in it with you, that He's with you in it, and that He's been there. And so Paul, in the midst of it, breaks it open and says, listen, remember. Remember His presence with us. It's this declaration. Tim Keller said it this way, Jesus lost all His glory so that we could be clothed in it. He was shut out so that we could get access. He was bound, nailed, so that we could be free. He was cast out so we could approach. And Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you. That is being cast away from God. He took so that now all suffering that comes into your life will only make you great. A lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond and the suffering of a person in Christ, key words, in Christ, only turns you into somebody gorgeous. I think if we're to walk through whatever situation we're currently in, or whatever situation you see might be on the horizon, that there has to be this belief that Jesus is in the midst of it. That He's for you and that He's with you. We are going to uh, leave here now and uh, go out onto the back lawn. And while we're, not, uh, taking, while we're not taking communion this morning in the traditional sense, I find it fascinating that in the New Testament, the story is told of the one time that Paul was kind of reprimanding the church, saying, hey, you're not handling the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, the way that I envisioned or the way that God intended. And what he said is, listen, when you gather, you have a meal together. You enjoy one another. You celebrate one another. You laugh. You have a good time. All of that should be a part of what we experience. And so, we take communion in a different form today. Pulled pork. <laughs> yeah. And um, it, it's going to be good. It's going to be fun. We're going to enjoy it. But in the midst of whatever we're going through, I think we have to be reminded that it's not about our comfort. It's about us being able to endure. It's about us seeing Jesus in the midst of it. It's about us walking into these things knowing that He's for us. So let me pray, and then I'll uh, pray a benediction, and then we are going to announce the winners of the food contest. And then I'll dismiss parents, and a bunch of other things will happen, but let's pray right now, okay? God, thank you for your goodness to us. Um, God, I, I know so many times I don't consider it joy whenever I face trials. Um, I probably consider it just about everything else but that. But I think it's because what I want is to get out of the trial more than what I want is really you. So God, help us to remain under these things, to walk through them, to do that with the community around us, to do that with you present, and to do that for your glory. And God, may we be reminded of this, that your word says, blessed is the person who remains steadfast under trial, for when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised.
to those who love him. May that be said of us. May we receive the crown for walking in a way that endures. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.